0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Podcast. Today, Pastor Scott examines the ascension of Christ and what it means for Christian life. Now, here's today's message. The scripture this morning is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. Please turn to Acts chapter 1 in your Bibles or follow along in the sermon notes handout or the words on the screen. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up,
1: I hope you are doing well today, and uh, whether you're in the room or whether you're online, uh, we're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Scott Curry. I'm a pastor on staff here at Central, and uh, my pleasure today to be able to open Scripture with you. Um, as Martin mentioned last week, and probably as many of you know, uh, last week we celebrated what traditionally is and what really is in terms of our faith, the culmination of, um, of, of our faith, uh, at least of our celebration of our faith. We celebrated the death and resurrection of Christ, and so we should, right? Together, these things demonstrate Christ's divinity, God's love for humanity, and mark the collapse of the power of sin and death. Indeed, if there ever was anything that deserved our attention, It is the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we celebrate... And we have, right? Those of us who have been part of the church for a long time, we've celebrated this every year. And we enjoy that. We worship, and, and it's a, a tremendous, uh, as I said, culmination, a high point for us to remember some of the details. But as Barton said, we do celebrate this. We're reminded of this every week. But to take one of these weeks aside and to kind of uh, especially work through some of that, it's tremendous, right? And these are the things we love to share with our friends and family, this this amazing um, uh, testimony to the work and the power of, of Christ, of, of, of the love of God, and, and the, the fellowship of the, the, the Spirit together through uh, all the details and through the events of, of Easter. But, but again, those of us who have been around a while know that there's more to the story, right? Right? And, and and I have to be honest. Maybe you're like this. Uh, up until about five or six years ago, I used to, I used to, you know, enjoy celebrating and declaring Easter, right—the death and resurrection of Christ, like we said, and explaining that to friends and family or to to people. You know, you would uh, meet on the street, get into a conversation about that. But then I would get to the point sometimes, and maybe you can relate where they would say, okay, well, what happens next? This is amazing. This is incredible. What happens next? And, and, and it would be something like, and I have to admit, I was kind of a little, not really embarrassed, but just a little uneasy with kind of communicating what happened next, right? Because he died for us, for our sins, and he rose again, demonstrating his, his, his power over death, right? Those are, are, are amazing uh, symbols and amazing actions. And then we go, well, So what happens next? Well, he ascended to heaven. Was that what happens next? Well, he, you know, he went to heaven. I I used to have trouble explaining this. I I used to have trouble understanding this. Sure, it was just another amazing event in the life of Christ. There were so many, but... But what what difference does the ascension of Christ make? I want us to spend some time, because like I said, recently, over the last five or six years, there's been occasion where, where I've, I've had this explained to me, in, and it's helped me to understand the depth that, that really the ascension is a continuation of the Easter story. It's a continuation of the work that Jesus is doing, has done, and is doing on our behalf for all of us. And so I want to consider what happens next. And it's important, I think, today, there's a couple of reasons why I think it's important for us to consider what the ascension means for us. First, as I just kind of explained, the Easter season, we've just finished the Easter season and thus have spent some considerable time emphasizing the importance of the death and resurrection of Christ, and so we should. But the ascension, as, you'll, as I hope you'll see by the end, is a continuation, and so must also be recognized and the other, the second reason, is because the Ascension presents us with some glorious truth that directly applies to us, even today. So, let me try to set the stage for the Ascension a little bit, and in so doing, review some of the material we've just kind of gone over for the last couple years. And so, if you're new, this, this will be great for you, and if you've been around a while, you, you know these details, but let me remind you again. A little less than 2,000 years ago, Jesus had been living and traveling with a group of people that varied in number, but always included about 12 guys. These were the ones you hear referred to as disciples. At that time, Jesus spread the news about God's rule and invited all those who would hear into this rule to participate with them together in God's kingdom. While at the same time, trying to help these disciples understand the implications for, for this rule along the way. As we read the Bible, it's evident that they had trouble putting the pieces together. Then at one point, about three years into their public ministry, they experienced what they thought was maybe the most significant confirmation of their hopes and dreams that they had attached to Jesus. This is the event that we celebrate as Palm Sunday, you remember this, right? They entered into Jerusalem to tremendous fanfare and celebration. And they must have been thinking, this is what I'm talking about. This is what we're doing. This is, this is uh, exactly what I hoped and what I thought would 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 happen by following Jesus, by listening to him. The city's population had swollen to include millions of people. And it seemed like every one of them was there singing and welcoming them into the city. And welcoming them... Well, more importantly, him as their savior. But in less than a week, they had sunk low. As low as they thought possible. As growing anxiety, a sense of helplessness, and deep fear began to take over in their hearts. As they watched Jesus arrested, beaten into a bloody pulp, and then hung on a cross to die a very public, humiliating, and gory death. He was dead. He had left them. After a few days of huddling together in fear, afraid that they might face the same fate as their beloved leader, they decided that maybe the threat had actually passed them by. And so they began to slowly trickle out of Jerusalem in the attempt of returning to their normal, everyday lives. Never losing the sting of disappointment and despair, but attempting to to return to their old life nonetheless. I mean, what else could they do? Their wonderful leader, the one in whom they had placed their faith, was gone. Suddenly, though, Reports began to surface, alarming reports that something significant had happened. The body of Jesus, the one placed inside a tomb, was no longer there. The tomb was empty. Contrary to the more natural conclusion that maybe someone had stolen the body, some was actually started to claim that they had seen him, even talked with him. Others were coming right out and saying that he was alive again. What? Alive? A few of these disciples ran to check the tomb. They knew where it was. There had been a garrison of Roman guards there just the night before. Now nobody was there. And indeed, the tomb was empty. Well, they gathered together again with a growing sense of, was it hope? That Jesus was indeed alive. And suddenly, there he was. He was back, and they saw him. Thomas even touched him. They saw him eat. They heard him speak. He seemed different, but there he was, right in front of them. But they still weren't sure. This group of disciples still weren't sure to make of Jesus. They didn't have much experience with interacting with people who recovered from well, being dead, but there he was. As a few weeks passed, a few of them followed him to the top of a hill at the edge of town and a few of them uh, with him asked some, some things about him, ab- about what was going to happen next because they were looking for something to help them make sense of all of this. Maybe they could hope again. Maybe this was the time that they were expecting. And they were just starting to get used to Jesus being around again. This brings us to our passage. Maybe one of the most dramatic and in my mind humorous passages in all of scripture. It just happened. Jesus just lifted off of the ground. He lifted off the ground. There was no warning, no engines revving. Not even an up, up and away. Or, if that reference is too old, no, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> he went right up into the clouds, and he was gone. Gone, again. So, how to make sense of this? Well, that would have been enough, just in and of itself. But then as the disciples were looking up. Some of us know that experience, right? When we've accidentally let go of a helium balloon or something and we're just looking. We're seeing how long we can see it until it disappears. Well, as the disciples were doing that, as they were looking up, then all of a sudden, there was a couple more among among them that hadn't been there before. And these guys just came to them and were looking at them and wondering what, looking up, and one of them turned and said, guys, what are you looking at? And then these angels went on to explain that this was intentional. And I'll leave it there for now. I'll pick it up again in just a little bit. Because I don't know if angels have a sense of humor or a sense of irony But imagine these guys asking that question when they've just seen what they saw. A man just rising up physically, bodily in front of them and disappearing in the clouds. I'm sure the one that spoke had a bit of a smirk on his face, I'm sure. So at this point, the kind of the finale of the ascension, Jesus is up and he's gone. There exists for us today a temptation to draw a bit of an incomplete conclusion. We might find ourselves tempted to think, well, Jesus has finished his work. He said it himself. Now he's left us to make room for the coming of the Holy Spirit. I'll talk about that in a moment. So we wrap up things in our mind and maybe in our conversations like this. Well, Jesus died, rose again, and now is seated at the right hand of God. As if Jesus is done, and now he needs a bit of a breather. Maybe some kind of divine load management. Which, it's all very true, but it only tells part of the story. As we'll see, Jesus Christ is still at work. But there will time, well, there'll come a time again when he will cry, it is finished. So let me explain. The ascension of Jesus entails a, a number of Jewish and theological claims. Uh, I've listed just a few of the critical chapters here on a slide, hoping that you'll look further into this matter. Uh, We'll show this slide briefly here. But the idea is that they will be on the sermon notes for you to look at later. I I will refer to a few of these passages today, but I thought I would just alert you to uh, all all these different ties, the important ties. Leviticus 16, a couple chapters in Daniel, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, Mark 14, Acts 3, Romans 8, Hebrews 7 to 10, at least, if not more of Hebrews, first John chapter 2 so to understand the importance of the ascension we need to do a little bit of background work we need to go farther back back before even all the events around the life of Jesus happened we need to go right back to the book of Leviticus and we need to look at Leviticus chapter 16 and I know some of you who know the book of Leviticus, Leviticus are pretty excited about this right Not the most, not the usual reference, but it's important for us to understand. I'm not going to take time to read the whole passage. I'll just do a little bit of summary here for you. Because Leviticus 16, sometimes this is the um, description of the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, is an interpretation aid for us to understand the ascension. So let me explain, give you a little bit of insight into uh, into Leviticus 16. Roughly 3,500 years ago, a group of people that would become known as the nation of Israel escaped from slavery in Egypt and began to establish an identity as a special nation under God's rule. An important characteristic of this developing national identity was national purity because the holy God was present in their midst. The Israelites were instructed to retain purity in life and worship throughout the year. But provisions were made for the occasion when that purity was compromised. Offerings could be made at the temple, their central place of worship. uh, In various forms, depending on the severity of the sin. One could offer grain or maybe the sacrifice of a small animal or a large animal. The point here is that one could not atone or make amends or clean up their own sin. Something else had to be offered. Furthermore, someone who has undergone special ritual cleansing had to make the offering on behalf of another. Every step of this process was intended to remind the Israelites that grace from another was required. To keep that national purity, to retain God's presence in the middle of their nation. Moreover, even the ritual area, even the temple was a reminder of the separation. The, 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 the great, the gulf uh, that separated God, the, the holy God from humanity When the temple was first constructed, the temple of God consisted of an area called the great court. And that's where all the nation would gather. All the people would gather. Then uh, through a gate, there would be a, a court of priests or the inner court. And that's where the ceremonial washings and the offerings were carried out. But only the priests were allowed into that section. But both of these courts were outside the temple proper, the main temple area. The actual temple consisted of a porch or entrance, then into the holy place, then into the most holy place in which the nation's most sacred uh, religious symbol was located, the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the tablets of the law. It is there, the most holy place in which the presence of God resided, Now, after the first temple or Solomon's temple was destroyed during the invasion of Babylon in the 6th century BCE, another was built in the same fashion, except the greater court, the outside court, was further divided into an outer Gentiles court and then an an inner inner women's court. In other words, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, could go only so far, right to the very outreaches outside the the temple bounds, then, then through a gate, The women could go that far, but they couldn't go any further. Then the men and the priests could go further in, getting closer and closer and closer to the presence of God. Then one day per year, the Israelite people would celebrate Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. This is what Leviticus 16 describes. On this day, once a year, the chief of the priests, the head priest, entered that innermost area, the most holy place. But before that could happen, before that could take place, a national fast was declared during which all of the nation would refrain from eating in that day. In addition, the sacred space, including all the implements and the chief priest himself, would be purified. The main source of that purification was blood from the sacrifice of a bull and the sacrifice of a goat. The bull was offered on behalf of the priesthood to purify them, and the goat on behalf of the rest of the people of Israel. Then the blood was collected from these animals and used together as the purification medium. The high priest would sprinkle blood on each of the implements in the inner courtyard, including the altar, and then... Holding a censer of incense, you you've seen these right before. That usually censers uh, now are, are pretty ornate little bowls that have burning incense that has a bit of a cloud of smoke. Uh, back back in this day, it could have been something that looked more like a shovel. But regardless, there were coals, there was incense, and that there was smoke coming out. So the chief priest would take the censer and the the container of blood and would enter into the, to the most holy place. The, the, um, the smoke or the burning incense was meant to shroud the, the, the priest from seeing all in the inner most holy of, of holies. Because that's where resided the presence of God. And God took that seriously. In fact, previous to all of this, some had entered the holy place inappropriately and had lost their lives. And so from that point on, they took this step very seriously. This was very serious, very important to the nation of Israel because it was very important to God. So the high priest would enter the most holy place and and would uh, shroud it in the cloud uh, and sprinkle the blood on the front of the ark. So now is it starting to make sense? Now is it starting? Do you start to see what Jesus maybe was doing here? Why he did this uh, demonstrably before his disciples? As I said, that that whole description was a summary. I'll leave it to you to investigate the rest of the ceremony in in Leviticus chapter 16. But now I think we can sort of see as we look at the details of Acts chapter 1 and understanding, understand more the importance of what Jesus was doing on our behalf by bodily rising and entering through the cloud into the most holy place, into God's presence on our behalf. He is our chief priest. So these are the things, these are the details that matter. Jesus rose bodily, he he lifted up bodily, and he entered into the clouds. And that's a great picture, that's a description, that's a representation, a replication of what the chief priest did once a year on behalf of the entire nation. Here's Jesus doing it again, entering into the, 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 the presence of God, doing it on not just one nation's behalf, but on behalf of the whole world after offering himself as a perfect sacrifice. But in addition to the Acts narrative, there's more. The Bible gives us a little bit more to help kind of solidify our understanding of the ascension and this, its connection to the ceremony of the atonement. And so to do that, we can look at three claims about Jesus related to the ascension. These statements are found elsewhere in scripture. The first of which is in the letter to the Hebrews. In chapter 8 verses 1 to 2 we read these words. Now the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. Right? Do you see that? Right? It's just, it's just explaining all of these details, summarizing all of these details, and, and it's identifying Christ as that for us. So the ascension isn't just some way for Jesus to kind of dramatically leave the earth, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's an event. It's explaining. It's describing what he's doing on our behalf. He's going there to continue for us, to work for us. But first, as Hebrews says, he is seated at the right hand of the Lord. Right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. What is that? Well, God's right hand was a metaphor for a place of honor. And, and likely all of us know that to some degree, right? If we have somebody beside us, right? These are the people that we're, we're wanting to celebrate. We're wanting to introduce. We're, we're, we're wanting other people to know. And this is Jesus sitting at the right hand. It's a metaphor for a place of honor, but it's even more than that. Right? It's a way of referring to God himself as king. Jesus is king. So if God is, is, uh, is, is his presence is that most holy place, and he is the sovereign over all the creator, by, or Jesus, having Jesus come and sit at his right hand, is Jesus assuming that same kind of authority? As Donald Hagner explains, he writes this, the ascension of Christ to the position of power and authority at the side of the Father is the vindication of the true identity of the one who suffered and died in accomplishing the forgiveness of sins. This is his true identity. King of kings and Lord of lords. And we say this, and by sitting, by using that terminology, the Bible's explained that Jesus is receiving that, is accepting that, is in that place. I and mean, after all, Jesus promised that would be the case. We read that in a couple places in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, for instance. And that, in, in turn, is, is in reference to the immensely important Psalm 110. The purview or the scope of this rule, folks, is absolutely everything. It goes beyond simple geopolitical realms. It is everything. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. So, Jesus seated at the right hand equals Jesus is king over everything. And by sitting down, he assumes that role. Now, we should not take this to mean right now Jesus is sitting on the throne again and has been sitting there ever since the day of ascension. Right? As as if he's kind of on the beaches of heaven, just sort of sitting there. Scripture reveals that he's doing more, much more Than just sitting. So the next passage we want to take a quick look at. Is Romans chapter 8. In just one verse there. Verse 34. In that verse we read. Who is to condemn? Paul writes to the Romans. It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes. Who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Yes. All of these things. Yes. And who indeed intercedes for us. Who indeed prays for us. Who indeed is still ministering on our behalf. Who is there for us. For you and for me. The same comment is repeated in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Quickly, the context of Romans 8, 34 revolves around two rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who or what can be against us? The answer there is nobody. Nobody. More specifically, then, to to that verse, verse 34, the question comes, who is there to condemn us? With Jesus in the presence of God on our behalf, praying for us, ministering for us, nobody is there to condemn us. And not just because he died, or because he rose again, or because he is at the right hand of God, Uh, But because also, right now, he's praying for each of us. He is our representative. Again, he is our our high priest who remains working on our behalf. This is not superfluous to what Jesus has done before. It's not just a a unique add-on. This is an essential part of the process. This is not a make-work project for Jesus, as if God somehow thought, well, how am I going to keep him occupied now? We need him to represent us to the Father. Now, not because the Father does not love us or needs mollified, but because you and I, we still sin. And He is holy. We need the completed work, the whole work, the sacrifice for our behalf, the offering in order to purify us. The blood sprinkled on the altar shed for us. We need that, but we also need our chief priest, our high priest to do it on our behalf, to go into that. And here Christ is uniquely the offering, the blood and our chief priest all at once in the presence of God saying, he is for us. As David Moffat writes, Our salvation is completely contingent on Jesus, the one who died, but even more rose, ascended, and presently intercedes for us. Jesus interceding for us then equals Jesus, our high priest. This is in concert with his death and resurrection, our perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. The the covenant is sustained by his intercession, his presentation of of perfect humanity and his purification on behalf of the rest of us. The same imperfections that you and I face uh, of imperfect humanity do not limit him. His prayer is a ministry on our behalf. He's not constrained by sin. Through his faithful righteousness, and he is not constrained by death through the power of his resurrection. Then, our final passage, we just read a couple of verses in, in the first letter of John. And there we read this My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins, but, but also for the sins of the whole world. Once again, we read of Jesus' work on our behalf. He's not done. He's, he's finished. He's finished. And that, that was uniquely John's gospel version. He's finished the work that God had prepared for him to do in his first coming. But he continues to work for our behalf right now. Typically, this is a term that is applied, right? This, uh, this term advocate is a term that is applied to the Holy Spirit. If, you, if you're aware of this, he is the one who indwells and inspire, inspires and convicts us activities that imply a profound intimacy. But you might recall when Jesus told his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he said to them that the father would send another advocate, another one who's going to be for you, for us. In the whole process of God gathering people together, God preparing his kingdom and, and inviting all to enter through the blood of Jesus, it is entirely consistent then to, to view the present work of Christ on our behalf as advocacy. Now the content now we, we need to we need to stop and pause for a moment here because the context of this section of John. The first letter of John is the ongoing problem of sin in the life of the follower of Jesus. John helps us to face this situation square on. We all sin. But because we have an advocate, one who is for us in our place, we are able then to confess our sin. And our high priest, who is sovereign over all, the perfect sacrifice, is is presently offering himself and his blood that he shed to purify us time and time again. It is there. But take care, however. In addition to that, John also helps us to not go too far with this, right? Because the temptation is to go too far. Well, then let's just do whatever we want to do, right? John says no. If you understand the work of Christ now, the present work of Christ now, as permissive. That you and I can just go ahead and sin. John also clarifies that. That, in fact, if you keep on sinning, you step outside of the light. You're no longer in that light. If you intentionally do that if you desire to do that, if you follow after that lifestyle. So John invites as part of that, that, uh, that chorus of messengers sent from God to call us back into purity because Jesus is working on our behalf to face our sin and all the challenges related to that because we can find forgiveness and we can find release and ultimately we will find purification. So by now, hopefully you can see That these terms are a little bit different, right? He's interceding, he's advocating, he's sitting at God's right hand. But they connote the same idea. They refer to the same thing. That Jesus, we have one who is right now in the presence of God. A position that he alone, absolutely alone can fill. Who is right now working on our behalf. He is sustaining the covenant with his perfect righteousness and with his blood no longer needing to be shed, but it performs the same function. He purifies us. So Jesus, as our advocate, means he is for us. Let me conclude with, a, with some four observations that I think we can take away. And as I do that, I'm going to invite the music team to come and take their uh, places on the stage in preparation for our final song this morning. For now, we remain obscured. For now, now, Jesus remains in the cloud. He remains alone in the presence in God's most holy place. And there is tremendous mystery beyond our best imagination. This tension, this is a tension between the kingship of Christ and the priesthood of Christ. He is performing both. In the end, he will be king. So maybe you you didn't know that God did not or didn't work just for us in history but that Jesus is working now. And maybe you've yet to respond. The invitation from Jesus to come and follow Him continues to this day because He continues to work on our behalf. And so, the invitation—you need to hear this now. If you haven't stepped in line to follow Jesus, start now. Start today. Submit your life to Him. He has paid it all. He's done it all for your uh, and my life. And and uh, it, it's a matter of of submission, of of. Uh, Releasing control of allowing him to take lead and you follow him. The guilt that you feel, Jesus is taking care of that. The anxiety you feel, Jesus is preparing a future. That is what the angel said, that was the message, that was what he said. The, the reason he went like that is because he's going to come back like that. Really, truly, bodily for us and set up his kingdom when all will be at, at rest when all will be done, when all will be purified, when, 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 God, when he will be our God and we will be his people. Then the second thing is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, keep fighting the battle. Keep facing sin. Keep leaning into God's uh, presence for help. We can walk in the confidence of our great and mighty praying advocate who is for us. We can approach the throne of God. Why? Because you and I have one who is there for us. Because we approach the majestic throne of Almighty God and there he is. Our advocate who exclaims, there he is. There she is. That's the one I've been praying for you and I need to continue to face that battle and continue to um, uh, uh, refrain from sinning and stop sinning and uh, treat sin seriously. The third thing is this. Christ leaving reminds us that in matters of following Jesus, in God's economy, when God works, there is purpose in absence. The Christian faith recognizes that in God's economy, when he works, there is purpose and absence. Jesus told his disciples that he would be leaving, but that he was going on purpose for a great reason because God intended something more. It is good for you that I go, Jesus explained, because when I do, God will send his spirit, a fulfillment of earlier prophecy, and that spirit will indwell believers and will help us, will help them to do even greater things than Jesus did. And the final thing is this: there is hope, and that was the angel's claim. He is coming again. Jesus is coming again. So, what is the bottom line? Our appropriate response to the ascension. The ascension means approach. You and I have a, a path to the presence of God through the life, through the death. Resurrection and ascension of Jesus who is there as our advocate. So let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you that we can approach you because of the work of Christ. That he has done everything on our behalf. Out of great love, And our great need, because without that work, Father, you know, we are hopeless. We are lost forever to be separate from you and your presence. But God, I thank you that because of Jesus, those of us who follow him, and that invitation is for everyone, Father, continue to work in the lives of those who are yet to decide. Continue to remind them of your love and invite them to, to trust you with their life. But Father, I thank you that those of us who have made this decision can walk with you, can deal with sin and continue to work and, and to allow the presence of Christ and the work of Christ to purify us, to experience the freedom and anticipation of the final cleansing, the final freedom when when uh, death and sin will be no more and there will be complete harmony and peace with our creator. And so Father, we admit that we are we are, we are hopeful. We see dimly now because Jesus has left. We have the spirit who helps us and we thank you for that. We have your word that declares this to us that we can study and learn and grow. And so God, would you please lead us and continue to guide us and help our faith to increase as we follow you with all our um, life and all our energy, all the resources that we have under control. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.